0: There's no better time to become a member of the DSR Network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, If you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support.
1: 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another in our special series of podcasts that we call the Road to COP28, in which we discuss big uh, issues associated with the climate crisis and the efforts by the international community to address it. Today, uh, in this special episode, we are extremely fortunate to be joined by Robert N. Stevens who is the A.J. Meyer Professor of Energy and Economic Development and Director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program and the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements at, as you may have guessed, Harvard University. Thank you for joining us.
0: Uh, Pleased to be with you, David.
1: Um, So, as you uh, may have garnered from the title, we're looking forward to the COP28 meetings that are taking place um, uh, during the first two weeks of December of this year. And we're trying to have a constructive discussion about what we can expect Um, uh, what we should expect, what may come out afterwards. Uh, And so let me start there. Uh, As you look ahead to this and considering the track record of prior COP meetings, what are your expectations?
0: Well, so my expectations are based naturally upon my experience that goes back about 15 years having attended these. And um, it's really conditioned by the fact that from the beginning, which would go back to uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in Rio, 1992, um, and then into the first conference of the parties, which was in Berlin in 1995, there's been a continuous evolution. And I think actually it helps. I'm going to offer to you a description of this evolution because it really... I think will provide your viewers and listeners with a different take and a different way to think about the cops, including the one this year. So the UNFCCC provides for an ongoing role for quote, civil society, unquote, in the annual talks. And that's, that's very important. That's quite different from the World Trade Organization and lots of other ongoing institutions with annual negotiations. And the importance of civil society, which are in what are called side events and all sorts of meetings and displays in the annual talks has increased each year. So when I started this, which was COP13 in Bali, Indonesia in 2007, I'd say, and I'm just quantifying this informally, is that 95% of the attention and the action was the UNFCCC negotiations themselves, the main event. And then five percent of the attention was on these civil society sideshows, but the evolution to let's say COP27 last year in Sharm El Sheikh was that five to twenty-five percent was focused on the negotiations, and seventy-five to ninety-five percent focused on the sideshows. It essentially has became Climate Expo 2022. And this year is going to be Climate Expo 2023. Now, I'm not saying that to be flippant nor in a pejorative sense, because that can be important and constructive. But it's useful to recognize that only a small part of the action is within the actual negotiations. That's particularly true. Uh, since we got the Paris Agreement, because the Paris Agreement is now in place. Um, But this has been a continuous evolution. Um, Having said that, if you want me to go on and then say specifically about COP28, what what to expect, with regards to the negotiations themselves, officially this is the year of the global stock take under the Paris Agreement which means comparing the aggregation of all the nationally determined contributions of the individual parties, um, what's being achieved, and compare that to the Paris goal, which is, as you know, 2 degrees C or 1.5 degrees C, if possible, above pre-industrial level in this century. Um, But that global stock take, by the way, is in aggregate. It does not include assessing Uh, contributions by individual parties to the agreement. But I think much more prominent are going to be the negotiations regarding what's referred to as the loss and damage fund. And I assume that's already come up. You've spoken with others about COP 28. I'll reiterate to explain what the loss and damage fund is, is that the Paris Agreement itself is largely about emissions mitigation, about reducing emissions. And then the $100 billion fund targeted to start in the year 2020 um, is mainly about adaptation. But some impacts cannot be adapted. Obviously, sea level rise is existential for a small island state. And that's where loss and damage comes in. But there's controversy there because the main contributors to the stock Of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the United States, the European Union, and China were worried about unlimited international legal liability for bad weather taking place in a developing country. So the Paris Agreement finessed that um, in ways that you could either admire or condemn, depending upon your perspective. They did it by saying loss and damage is a very important issue, but we agree, we the 195 parties, we agree that it is, quote, not a basis for liability or compensation, unquote. So the developing countries then began to think about another route for loss and damage, namely establishing a fund ex ante rather than waiting for something ex post. And this is the notion of a loss and damage fund. So that was a big issue last year in COP27. China took the position of supporting the creation of a fund, but then said that as a developing country, of course, we, China, will not make any financial contributions to the fund. And that's because China uses the definition that comes from the UNFCCC itself of being a non-annex one country. Of course, China's per capita income, has increased more than 3,000% since that time. So that was the Chinese position. It's a great idea, but we're not going to contribute. The U.S. was opposed. And then there was a change of heart. And in the second week, I think it was the second week of COP27, uh, John Kerry, who's the head of the U.S. delegation, he changed positions, presumably with the approval of the White House, and said, we support the creation of the fund. But I think that itself might be somewhat cynical because, and although this has certainly not been stated by the administration, it's my view, is that the position is essentially we think the fund is a great idea like China does, but given Republican control of the U.S. House of Representatives, we're surely not going to be able to increase any contributions beyond what we've already been doing, which is probably, you know, an empirically correct Uh, statement. So going into COP28, this is going to be a very uh, big issue, both in terms of who contributes to it, which at this point are some European Union countries saying they'll give in the tens of millions of dollars into the fund, whereas the annual demand from the fund will eventually be in the trillions of dollars. If you think about just one event, like the floods last year in uh in India and Pakistan um you know which was on the order of 40 to 50 billion dollars of damages according to the World Bank so the other big issue is going to be who who decides how to disperse the funds uh what are the rules for that um the G77 plus China as it's called which is the coalition of developing countries um, they want the U.N., the United Nations, to control it. Um, because the U.N., which is one country, one vote, is obviously dominated by developing countries. The United States wants the World Bank to control it. They say that they have the technical expertise, but the G77 fears that the U.S. controls the World Bank because we essentially appoint the president. So the last thing I'll say is that, you know, there's a question is, is the loss and damage fund an empty shell? Or is it a first step towards equitable sharing of the burden of climate change? I think it's possibly some of both. And uh, it's probably too soon to say for sure where it's going to go.
1: You know, when you describe it, It sounds a little bit like a microcosm of the the entire COP process, which is to say there is a glass-half-full interpretation and a glass-half-empty interpretation. You know, the Paris Accords were in accord, so that's a good thing. But they didn't really lock anybody into any specific outcomes, so that was not a good thing. Um, Subsequent meetings have produced discussions uh, on... Uh, uh, progress we've made, uh, but a lot of the progress we've made has been driven by factors other than this process, market factors, development of new technologies, and so forth. Um, you talk about uh, uh, the creation of a fund, uh, but there seems to be some question about how it's going to get funded uh, or it, you know how it will then be administered once it is. Um, this far into the COP process, um do you see it um, as a as a as a kind of of you know sort of expression of earnestness on the part of the world but not a, a, a mechanism for action, or are the actions it's taking sufficiently meaningful that uh, we should be grateful that it it's happening at all?
0: Well, so there a couple of aspects occurred to me. One is, you know, the cliche often attributed to Winston Churchill about democracies. You know that the UNF triple C is the worst possible process for climate change, except for all the others, because we haven't had uh, proposed another process. And I can comment on the ones that have been proposed that is clearly superior. I mean, there is uh, the Major Economies Forum which is the 20 countries and regions that account for 80 to 90 percent of emissions. That makes a lot more sense than having 195 countries agree, where you've got to get every small country in the world who really should be left alone. They're contributing nothing in terms of emissions to speak of. uh, And we can't saddle them with costs. They're too poor. Um, Or there's the G20, which is very similar. It's almost the same set of countries, the G20. But the problem is, is that uh, they don't have universal participation. And so the countries, the de- developing countries, which are like 150 or 195, there's no way that they want things to move into that kind of a dis- decision framework. What is possible will evolve is a climate club of sorts. Uh, a climate club, given the construction of the Paris Agreement, is not inconsistent, mutually inconsistent with the Paris Agreement. It would have been with the Kyoto Protocol, but not with the Paris Agreement. And so we may see the rise of a climate club, whether it'll be the kind that's been talked about, you know, fairly recently and prominently by Bill Nordhaus of uh, domestic carbon tax countries, all putting in place carbon taxes. They keep the revenue and then keep the others out uh, if they don't agree. And put tariffs on them well whenever that's even proposed developing countries by the way go nuts hearing about that because you know they just see that as incredible protectionism that would destroy their economies and their exports to the european union and the uh, united states and then the negotiating teams themselves they view it as oh my god that's going to be going against you know, uh, 50 years of evolution of the World Trade Organization and is horribly protectionist. So there's not a lot of support for that either. I mean, whether the Paris Agreement has had effects, and you're absolutely correct that emissions uh, have come down from what the trajectory was uh, before Paris. Part of that is, of course, due to the United States and technological change with fracking and low-cost natural gas, and you know, substitution of gas for coal, other technical developments, a variety of issues around the world. Some due to policy, like in the European Union. We don't know how much is due to the Paris Agreement because it's an unobservable hypothetical of where we'd be without the Paris Agreement. So you know, we 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 simply don't know. I don't think it's hurt. The only people who would say it's hurt who could legitimately make that argument would be if they wanted to argue that, well, the Paris Agreement has stopped us from getting the G20 going or getting a climate club going, which might have been uh, more effective. So I, I think there's just uncertainty uh, with regards to what the effects of the Paris agreement have uh, are. I mean, it's remarkable we came down from before when I first was getting involved in going to the annual negotiations. um, The IPCC was saying at that point, and that was probably AR 3, maybe AR 2 even, was saying that we were on trajectory for seven degrees centigrade increase relative to pre-industrial this century and obviously now the the business as usual is not that and with the paris ndcs if they were fully achieved which they're not going to be including by the european union um, but if they were fully achieved then you're getting down to three degrees c and then something very important is the uh under the montreal protocol the elimination now of HFCs under amendments to the Montreal Protocol, which were actually signed by, which went through both houses of Congress and were signed by former President Trump, quite remarkably, because it was part of a big budget package. Uh, That's another half a degree C shaved off. So things are a lot better, but they're still exceptionally uh, serious.
1: So be a prognosticator. Um, you've laid the stage, uh, set the stage very well with what the past has held. Uh, and you've identified one area where some people have spoken about progress. We've talked about it in our prior um, episodes, which has to do with funding. Um, uh, at the you know middle of December, when this meeting wraps up, uh, what are you hoping to see as a headline? What do you expect to see?
0: Well, I I would hope that one thing that will come out of this, and and this is an area where I am actually conditionally optimistic, uh, is with regards to another very important greenhouse gas, and that's methane. Now, I say methane is vastly more uh, has vastly greater radiative forcing than carbon dioxide per unit, but it remains in the atmosphere a much shorter time, so carbon dioxide has a half-life in the atmosphere of great, more than 100 years. Methane is largely out of the atmosphere between 10 and 20 years, um, but much greater radiative forcing. 80 times is great. And so that tells us something that's important, is that in the short term, and we're always in the short term, we're always in the next 10 to 20 years. And if you think about public policies, I don't know of any U.S. policies, uh, certainly in the environmental realm, that go to the year 2100 or even to the year 2050. I mean, the NDCs under Paris are for the year 2030. So that shorter time horizon is a very reasonable one to think about. And reductions of methane could buy time for the kind of technological change you were talking about. Other economic developments, maybe carbon removal technologies, to bend the curve on CO2 net emissions reductions. So, methane can be exceptionally important. And it's to the credit, I'll give the tre- credit to the Biden administration and the European Commission, their executive, um, put together uh, the Global Methane Pledge which is to reduce global emissions of methane by 30% by the year 2030. It's not individual country by country. It's 30% in aggregate, and it's voluntary participation by each of these. Uh, but there are actions taking place uh, around the world. Unfortunately, China is not a signatory to it, but uh, it's got now over, well over 100 countries are in. And this can be very important. And the reason that I'm somewhat optimistic is that the methane comes from three uh, sectors. It comes from fossil fuels, mainly the oil and gas industry, and that's from leaks. It's leaks from abandoned oil wells or abandoned gas wells, uh, pipelines that have leaks, refinery valves that have leaks, and then from coal, uh, from coal bed methane so that's one sector fossil fuels another is agriculture uh both livestock and uh rice paddies essentially and the third are uh landfills where you know organic matter leads to methane emissions and these are areas it, where either technologies exist or there are now important developments taking place in technology now to some degree this is perhaps self-serving and maybe that's why i'm so optimistic because i am directing at harvard a new university-wide initiative on reducing global methane emissions and we've got 17 faculty senior faculty members involved from across the university um, five departments of fas five professional schools working on this, and I call it the soup to nuts project because we got everything from physicists who are using satellites to measure methane concentrations in the atmosphere and then statistical analysis, which additional information to back out of that methane emissions at specific locations, specific points in time. That's one extreme. And then all the way the other extreme through people in the Kennedy School, the government department, economics department, Uh, history department, uh, the law school, and then the business school. Because the interesting thing about methane, if you're talking about it from the oil and gas sector, is when you reduce leaks, what you're doing is keeping in your pipeline a merchantable product called natural gas. So, you know, it can pay. Normally, I get very upset when people talk about win-win policies. This is one of those areas where it's actually Possible. And I'll stop there. I'm going on too long, but for other reasons as well on the technology, I'm cautiously optimistic about our ability to do something about methane emissions globally.
1: Um, yeah, no, no, you're certainly not going on too long. It's exactly why we're, we're delighted that you have uh, joined us here. Uh, I did think when you were talking about this Harvard wide project that you were going to suggest. That senior faculty members are responsible for methane emissions themselves, which has been my experience in academia. Uh, but uh, perhaps uh, uh, I, I, I meant something differently. You um, mean through travel? No, no. I mean through oh, oh I see their own mean. their own emissions. Uh, but uh, it, let let me to ask you one last question regarding COP twenty um, eight. There are some concerns about ab- ab- about the meeting. What would be an outcome that would trouble
0: you? Well, what would be troubling would be if it collapsed. That has not happened going back to COP1, but we came close a few times um, where developing country coalitions um, threatened to walk out. I mean, literally, just walk out. And so everything breaks down. I think that would be very troubling because we would lose momentum. Uh, it would give an excuse to some countries, perhaps to do less than they otherwise would. So a collapse would be troubling. Uh, I don't know that it's going to happen. You could picture it happening over the loss and damage, you know, debate the way I described it. On the other hand, if anyone was going to walk out, it would be the developing countries. And you know, where are they going to go? This, this is their best deal they're going to get because it's under the United Nations. So something under the UN. Um, is the best possible forum really for the developing countries of of the world? So I don't think that'll happen. But that would be that would be uh, really disastrous. Um, other than that, I mean, people are worried about what the closing statement. There's sort of a closing statement, a communiqué, like there is at any international negotiation that comes out on the last day. It's not particularly binding, but. A lot of people in the press will watch whether it talks about phasing out fossil fuels or phasing down fossil fuels, whether it says phasing out fossil fuels or phasing out unabated fossil fuel emissions. Those are the sorts of things that the press will uh, give a lot of attention to. And people will probably say that the talks are a success or failure on that basis. To me, they're a success if they successfully pass on the baton in what is a relay race to the next runner. In other words, the next year's COP. And the negotiating meetings that take place throughout the year, by the way, not just at the annual COP. Because if I can use one other cliche, you know, climate change and climate change policy development is a marathon, not a sprint. And and I know that some environmental activists and I used to work before I went to graduate school, I was full time at the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, and I know that many people, particularly young people, this, my own students, will find it frustrating often to hear such statements as that, that it's a marathon, not a sprint, because they want a sprint. Um, but But that's the the reality it's the reality of the nature of the problem itself that it's a long-term phenomenon that has to be dealt with and also in terms of policy development because this is a really challenging policy this is a global commons problem to any individual jurisdiction the direct climate benefits it receives are going to be less than the direct cost that it incurs That's not the case with acid rain, it's not the case with local air pollution, it's not the case with water pollution, with hazardous waste, with solid waste, with any other environmental problem that I've worked on. But this is a real global commons problem. And so international cooperation is necessary. As as you have pointed out by your questions, it may not be sufficient, but I think it's still necessary. And then there's the temporal, the intertemporal dimension, that it's a stock, not a flow environmental problem. So the benefits are really in the, the long term, it's this present discount of value of the future stream of damages, which we have to worry about. But in order to do something about it, you got to start taking actions now. And the costs of taking actions are right now, they're up front, but the benefits are delayed over time. Now think about that, David, in a representative democracy of asking members of, The Congress or members of the parliament in any representative democracy to put in place policies where they're going to place costs on the current generation, i.e., current voters, and give the benefits to the future. Because what you've seen and I've seen over and over again is the incentive structure in a representative democracy is to do the opposite, to give the benefits now. And place the costs off on the next generation, like with Social Security. That's where the. So, if you combine the global commons nature of the, of the problem with this intertemporal nature of the problem, this asymmetry, it means it's the most difficult political problem one can imagine. Someone that I've worked with a great deal in my life in, in the political world is former Senator Timothy Wirth from Colorado. And he, I remember he would say that this is the most politically difficult problem that one can imagine. And I, he didn't go through that whole description I did of the global commons and the intertemporal asymmetry, but that's essentially his thinking. And I think he's absolutely right.
1: Well, I'm a essentially a historian of how political processes work in Washington, particularly with foreign policy and national security. And there's a saying uh, that you can add to your collection of sayings here. Which is that Washington is a city in which um, the urgent always overtakes the important. Um, yes. okay. There is a high high premium uh, placed on dealing with the uh, well, what Jack London called the wolf closest to the sled, and yep. not these longer term issues. Yep. Uh, so the existence of such a process is, as you uh, suggest, um, encouraging. In our remaining minute or two here, um, let me just ask you one last question. That. That crosses my mind. Uh, at the outset, when you described how COP has evolved, you've talked about this kind of um, climate bazaar that has grown mm-hmm. in importance in and around uh, the official negotiations uh, to the point that, in some respects, it's now the um, the, the the bigger part of the affair. Um, as you've gone through these, as you look forward to this one, is the, do you have any expectation that that, in and of itself, uh, can produce outcomes other than its its vitality, the metric of its vitality?
0: Well, I think it can in, in a couple of ways. I used to be very cynical about it, by the way. I've evolved over time and come to recognize that the role for civil society in the periphery um, can be very constructive. The global methane pledge that Biden came up with with uh, the European Commission. That's outside of the negotiations. That's part of that periphery. There are also all sorts of consortia of private industry and environmental groups that are outside of the consortia. But there's another benefit of it. I mean, it reminds me somewhat of, you know, Davos, the annual economics and business get together in in the uh, High Alps. I remember one time When I was there, I was on a panel, and I was about to go on stage. So we were in this back room with the other panelists, and one of them uh, was the CEO of one of the world's largest corporations, who will remain nameless. And I and I said to him, um, you know, why do you come to Davos? Why do you come here? And and he said, Well, if I didn't come here. In order to meet with the people that I will meet with here, other CEOs, heads of state, people from academia, maybe like yourself. Oh, I think he said that just to be nice. Um, I would have to carry out 30 trips around the world taking 100 days. And here, I flew in yesterday and I'm flying out tonight and I'll have met them all. And I think that's the same reason why people go to the COP. People go to the cop because other people are going to be at the cop, and that's value. They talk to each other, and you know, I'll wind up having uh, meetings with quite a few negotiating teams at their request, with some people from private industry, with some NGOs, um, and things come from that. I mean, I, I've seen that that positive developments can evolve. Now, you could ask the question, David, which is where I thought you were going before. Well, is it worth it in terms of the carbon emissions of everyone flying there? And, uh, you know, I don't know. That's, that's an open question. I, I am going to be going. I don't know how much longer I'll be going, but I am going to be going uh, to this one. And I will remain cautiously optimistic. Part of which, last thing, one of the reasons I remain cautiously optimistic is because of the people that are out in the streets demonstrating, the young people, and you know I'm not talking only about the very prominent, you know, leadership of the international uh, climate uh, movements, but of young people in general, and I experience them every day in the university, and. It's very, very different. It, it reminds me of when I was their age, it was the Vietnam War that we were, you know, protesting. And these young people, there's a question, and I don't have the answer to it, and is it a cohort effect, or is it an age effect? If it's a cohort effect, then when they're my age, they're still going to be aggressive on climate change. If it's an age effect, then they're going to become more conservative as they get older, as most, but not all people do. But if it is the cohort, then that means that the people who are outside demonstrating, as they were in Sharm el-Sheikh, but even more so whenever we're in Europe or North America, that in the future, they will be inside the negotiating halls. They'll be doing the negotiating. And so the reason for optimism about this, for me, and it's for the long term, is because of youth climate activists?
1: Uh, here, here. You and I are probably very similar in age. And, uh, you know, I participated in some of those uh, demonstrations too. And I do think that there's a material difference in the nature of, of how young people view this, how uh, central it is to their lives, how natural yeah. it is for them to prioritize this um and that is probably the most encouraging development that has taken place over the course of the past um well i don't want to suggest it's been 50 years but it has been i have to acknowledge the you know, the past 50 years since you know these these things have have begun what was earth day 1970 yeah so that was that was yes. the, that was the first of them so that's uh, 53 years ago uh so uh, look, you know, I wish we could go on and on. Perhaps we'll be able to coax you to come back and join us again sometime in the future. This has been extremely illuminating and fascinating. Um, and I am sure all of our listeners are grateful uh, that you have joined us. Uh, maybe we'll reach out to you after COP and see what you thought of it. Um, but for now, uh, thank you, Professor Stevens. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we're going to keep doing these each and every week up to, through, uh, and beyond COP28. So keep coming back uh, for more in-depth discussions like this one. Uh, Until then, bye-bye.